Welcome to Under the Rug at Work, where I shine light on problems that are normally swept under the rug. Today, I'm chatting with Tom Bourne about psychosocial safety. Tom's a work health and safety trainer and consultant in WA, and he's been delivering training since 2012. Tom, you're also the host of the highly successful podcast, Health and Safety Conversations. Thank you so much for joining me. It must be different being on the other side of the mic. Uh, it is, Nicole. It certainly is. As someone who likes to um, run the show, it, it's a bit strange. So um, forgive me if I'm uh, a little adrift, but it's an absolute pleasure, as always, to actually speak to you. Thank you. Can you explain what psychosocial safety is for, for listeners who might not have heard it before? Psychosocial safety is to do with psychological hazards that are present in the workplace. Psychosocial safety, it's things that may affect your mental health and well-being whilst at work. Mm -hmm. That's a really good explanation and short and sweet. Oh, I could talk about the different categories if you like. I mean, there's, there's harassment of every sort. There's bullying and harassment. Um, any design and uh, situations at work that will put you under stress, such as unreasonable work demands, mm -hmm. just to name a few. It's one of those important things. It it's It's been around forever and it's been an employer's obligation forever. But in the last two to three years, a lot more attention has been given to it as perhaps workers come to the realisation they don't have to put up with I don't know, that sort of crap anymore. Yeah. It's been spelt out explicitly in codes of practice, mm -hmm. Queensland Code of Practice, which is actually legally enforceable as well, but codes of practice around uh, Australia and in the process of being uh, written into regulations in every jurisdiction around Australia. Some jurisdictions have, have it already. Uh, I know in lovely Western Australia on December 24th, when everyone is watching, uh, they slipped it into the regulations. Mm -hmm. um, and I understand that for Commonwealth jurisdictions, it's April 1st, it comes into effect. So uh, unfortunate date for it to come into effect, but <laughs> yeah, still highly misunderstood by employers. And still, it's a bit scary for what we're seeing in terms of control measures that are being suggested, mm -hmm. at, at least for health health and safety professionals, I believe, anyhow. Can you expand on that a bit? What, what are your fears? What are your concerns? I went to a talk uh, late last year in Brisbane and a lovely professor was giving a, a chat and he talked about managing psychosocial risks almost like by window dressing mm -hmm. uh not changing the toxic environment that you the workers are forced to actually work in but sort of papering over the cracks that are already there through things like just straight out resilience training now resilience training in itself is not a bad thing it's a form of um, equipping workers with skills and education to help them cope with uh, situations but if we don't actually address the situations in the workplace and we're just basically telling the workers you're the problem mm. um it's not really helping anyone it, it's it's almost like it's politically correct version of what we used to get told in the workplace which is take a teaspoon of cement grow a spine grow something else take one for the team you know those sort of rubbish that you used to actually get told yeah uh, it's now we've got this window dressing where 
you know, we're still saying it's the workers who are wilting flowers rather than actually addressing the problem. Mm. And I do understand psychosocial risks are problematic for workplaces because there aren't a lot of psychologists or, or people who are trained in psychology who have the skills to perhaps deal with these problems directly in the workplace. We've traditionally pushed all this stuff into human resources and somehow hope that they're equipped to deal with it. And to a degree, they have. They, they've done wonderful things. Like if you've got clear policies and expectations around the conditions of the workplace, what we're going to tolerate, what we're not, there's a natural sense of justice in the workplace. If this is your behaviours, these are the consequences, and it's laid out and followed justly for everyone, there are some good things. There are, there are some good things for, for setting boundaries. But because of the changes to the health and safety legislation and the codes of practice, the scary thing is we seem to be pushing all of those issues onto safety professionals. And I don't know, I, I really don't know if having a certificate for in health and safety and perhaps a uh, an investigation qualification, which I'm talking about uh, the safety investigation qualifications, two or three day courses, actually equips people with being able to identify psychosocial risks and come up with some strategies to deal with psychological hazards. It is concerning, particularly as the legislation is very specific and it says that psychological hazards now must be dealt in exactly the same manner as physical hazards. If you start to look down the hierarchy of controls and you start to go down them and you go, I don't know if this actually really is that applicable to psychological hazards. The other scary thing is we may end up with employers who just let's do a raft of policies and procedures and just get workers to sign on in, in inductions. And I don't think that's the answer either. And it's interesting they want to treat both physical and psychological hazards the same. However, they don't treat the injuries the same. It's good that they're giving them equal weight. I agree with that 100%. Equal weight, that it, it makes sense. And laying it out for employers to see that's the case is, is, is a really smart move. But they're not the same. People recovering psychological risks and psychological damage has been inflicted on them uh, tend to take longer to come back to the workplace. They, mm. they Their claims tend to be more expensive and the solutions that are put in place are sometimes more dramatic. A, a hazard you can eliminate mm. in some situations, but what does that mean for someone who's doing bullying behaviour? Because if we eliminate them, we're talking about sacking someone or doing what we've traditionally done is move them sideways or sometimes in worst case scenarios, promote them out of the position. It's it's a can of worms, I, I believe. I, I'd agree. Uh, and I feel like the tools just aren't there. And you raised a really interesting point earlier as to where it should be. Should it sit solely with the health and safety rep? Should it sit with HR? Everyone's trying to do their best. Where do you feel it it sits or should it be a collaboration? In my opinion, <laughs> it, should, it should be a collaboration. But I think we've got to start looking at perhaps employing or at least engaging people with human factors, qualifications, performance qualifications. And this is all new to me. I, I only found out about this in the last 12 months. But from what I understand is they're the people who actually have some real long-term solutions that can help businesses and individuals 
to me, it's also worrying when I talk to highly professional people in safety and they seem to be stressing to their workers that they've given this great definition of what bullying is. And, and they say, bullying and harassment, it must be repeated behaviour. And I go, yeah, yeah you've got a point. But harassment is harassment, and it only has to be once. Mm -hmm. And they're both illegal behaviours. So why are you trying to discourage people from reporting bullying by, by laying the precondition? It's an illegal behaviour. Surely you'd want to encourage your people to come forward and let you know about it so you can actually manage the situation. And promoting respectful behaviours. If you're being respectful, you're not bullying. You, you can have a conversation, even a tough conversation with someone, and it still be considerate, compassionate, and respectful. So focusing on the negative and the wrong thing and, you know, it has to be multiple times just seems like the wrong place to focus. It seems to be trying to quiet the conversation before you actually start it, which is, yeah, it's a bizarre approach considering that safety is built on trust and it's built on relationships. And if you're already laying down preconditions for the conversation to occur, well, people just won't have that conversation. Don't get me wrong. Uh, it, it's one of those things. Psychosocial risks are important to me. I've had various incidents throughout my career. I actually put in a successful workers' compensation claim years ago in a alpha male environment about bullying and harassment. And the industry I was in, I got told quite bluntly when I put it in, you're barking up the wrong tree because there has never been a successful psychological claim made in this industry. Mm -hmm. And I was just like, well, watch this space because it is going to happen because actually I know kind of a little bit what I'm talking about and what, you, what you're doing mm -hmm. and the behaviour you're condoning is actually illegal. I love the fact that we try and retain staff and I re-educate them, et cetera. But if clear expectations are laid down when staff arrive or when anything changes about what sort of behaviours are acceptable and whatnot, I don't think we should hide behind the fact that illegal behaviour is illegal behaviour. Mm -hmm. and, and that's just not bullying and harassment. It goes on to the sexual harassment and, and, and various forms of misconduct. If we're going to evolve as a society, and I can honestly say this, Nicole, as I've got older, it's not so much about me in my life and setting up the conditions for myself. I think about the legacy I want left behind for my kids and for their kids. What sort of, sort of society do I want to see them live in and see them raise their children in? And I think that we've got a bit of a way to go before we get that truly just society. I agree. And I do think it is generational and we are moving towards that. And I think looking at that legacy is a great way to look at it. And I always look at if I'm in an organization, whether it's for a contract or a short time or a long time, what's the legacy that I can leave and how can I improve the working environment for the people that are there? But I'd love to hear about your history and your experience because um, you have been in the industry for a little while. Can you share some of your experience and Maybe where you've seen the changes happening. It's a slow process. It's changing attitudes. Um, I do think you can make fast changes in attitudes and, and corporate cultures. And it's just a matter of making a stand and saying what's happened in the past is in the past. This is the way we're moving forward. But 
in a lot of heavy industries, it's a slow process. And whilst things are not perfect, I'm starting to see some, you know, some green shoots of change actually starting to emerge. I deal a lot with people who work in the resources industry and, you know, some of their situations in the past have been the kindest words you could say is a less than an ideal for any worker, um, particularly if you were a female, but any worker I'd suggest. One of the great benefits we've seen of the great wave of resignations and, and, and let's be honest, the staff shortages that we've seen since COVID and they're still carrying on is employers, whether they like to or not, and I'd like to think they, they do like to, I'd like to think they've become a bit more enlightened mm-hmm. uh, and it's not forced by other factors, but we're seeing they feel the need to change the conditions that their workers have available. And it goes to everything we'll to address psychosocial things, you know, the rosters. It wasn't that many years ago that we used to see four weeks on and one week off rosters. Try and encourage someone to do that sort of roster now and you'll be struggling to get anybody. Even a two week on one week off roster now is seen a, a little bit on the nose unless you really want to make money fast. So eight days on, six days off seems to be a, a good roster in the industry. I've seen some heavy industries in like in the trucking industry bring in things like part-time hours and flexible hours for drivers because all of a sudden they don't have many drivers and they realise they've neglected 50% of the population by not appealing to women. And so they're starting to move towards that too. Any sort of workplace that's offering people an option to do part of their work uh, from home becomes suddenly more attractive. And even to a degree that some, and I won't say a lot, but some of the unreasonable work pressures that are put on people to meet unrealistic KPIs or goals, that seems to be coming down a bit. It seems to be um, tempered with, you know, we'd rather you actually do your job safe. We'd rather you actually, you know, not burn out and you're available next week as well. So there, there are real issues out there. And I don't like to sell people unicorns and rainbows where they don't exist, but there's definitely a move for change. It will be very interesting in the next, say, 10 years as a new generation of human resources uh, people and people in recruitment in particular who are advising businesses step into their own because I think they may be key in influencing what the businesses see as acceptable behavior because If you're a business, you can forget the legal litigation and all that wonderful stuff like that. If you offer a toxic environment, you know, five or 10 years in the future, you just won't have any staff. It is great to see the shift coming. It's just sad that it's forced. It's either forced through legislation or it's forced through, you know, um, not being able to get enough staff. that they'll see the benefits and I'm sure they are seeing the benefits of flexibility and support and having a psychologically safe environment. Um, but yeah, it, it kind of feels like it's, it, it's a bit backwards. Yeah. I, I think you've got to accept that Nicole. I really do. Because if you're waiting for people to become enlightened, you might be waiting for a long time. <laughs> uh, I, if it's, if it's forced on them through one mechanism or the other, mm-hmm. And then they can see the benefit. But more importantly, if that then becomes 
the new standard, the new level mm-hmm. uh, that people expect because they've experienced it. I think that's a way to get change and change people's attitude as much as, you know, spending an awful lot of time and energy either coming down with the, the very heavy stick or, you know, offering a, a range of inducements, hoping people will change their minds. I, I don't see that happening. If there has to be a need for change or, or a perceived need for change for change to actually occur. Is there any advice that you would give or maybe tips that you would give employers or managers listening today on what they should be looking at and how they can improve psychological oh, I always think anything in business is about building relationships. I, I don't think it's a transactional type event where you, you know, someone turns up, they do X amount of work and, you know, you give them a paycheck, they go away and you take no interest in the people. I, I, I've never believed in that. People aren't two-dimensional objects or possessions that you own or control. They have their own lives, they have their own fears and their aspirations and the things that they look forward to life. There's been an awful lot of cynicism about the cliches about calling your people, your family, the heroes and all this rubbish like that. I don't know. Be a decent human being, whether it's in business or real life, and treat them like your family. Don't ask your people to do stuff that you wouldn't ask your son and daughter to do. Don't ask your people to do things that when you're a young person, you wouldn't be happy to do. Mm. Uh, and grow and mentor your staff treat them well retain them Mm. have succession plans in and grow them and keep them it's a cheaper exercise in the long run even if you're a bean counter it's a cheaper exercise to retain and keep your staff than it is to constantly have the revolving door of training and, and recruiting there's no magic stuff to this it's just being a good human being it's good advice and and having that longer term relationship and building that trust and being able to communicate effectively. If you do have a problem, you can say, hey, the way you said that or what you're asking me to do, I either don't understand or I don't think that's right. Can we have a chat about it instead of, you know, things going off the deep end, which it can when there is no relationship there and you are treated like a number. To be honest, we've always been there. We've always been people. We've We've never been numbers. Show some compassion for your people. You know, they they need to take a week off because someone's having a medical procedure and that. You're more likely to actually get them back and get them loyalty if you give them that week off. You know, they want to improve and have greater responsibility because they're bored in their role. I don't know. Educate them, train them, mentor them. It's not a throwaway line. Your staff will always be your greatest asset. They're the greatest source of reputation you have out in the community. So, you know, just treat them well and they'll treat you well. Love it and t- totally agree. Can you tell us a bit about your podcast and why did you start it? I train people and part of uh, my responsibility as a trainer is to keep up industry engagement. In rural Western Australia where I was at, there was very little chance for that um, and I certainly didn't feel like I was learning very much. Um, so woke up in the middle of the night and I said to my wife, hey, let's do a YouTube channel. And she said, no, don't do that. And I went, she said, do a podcast. And I said, too old for that rubbish, too old, too old. But she was right. It seems to have worked. The main good thing about talking to people on a podcast like like we do have with health and safety conversations is that um, I don't have to do all the talking because I'm pretty boring. 
there are a lot of people out there and everyone I've ever met has their own story to tell. And most of it is really interesting stuff that if they don't tell their story, it will basically go with them to their grave. And, and we miss that opportunity to learn from other people's experiences. Um, those people who have witnessed traumatic things or been involved in incidents, accidents, or, you know, major dramas in their life, we don't actually have to live that to learn from it. Yeah. But we've got to learn about it. And the only way you can learn about it is from actually talking and listening to people. And I've been absolutely honoured by some of the um, amazing people who've just come on and, and opened up their heart and soul just because they, they want to share. And it's been a very humbling experience, to be honest. Can you tell us your most memorable episode and why? Was it? They're all memorable, but for their own reasons. Yeah. Um, look, the very first people that came on, and you were one of those very first people that came on, you came on and you helped me out terrifically. I will be honest and say after about five episodes, I almost just gave it away completely because I was just like, it's too much effort. Other people who've come on, I've wanted to talk to people from certain specific disasters or major incidents around the world. Some of the people I've really wanted to talk to, but never ever thought I could have come on. And they've just said, yeah, I'll talk to you. And I'm going, I've got certain people that I hold up as safety superheroes in my life. I'll be honest, Nicole, I'm just a knob. And the fact that they've come and talked to me yeah, it, it blows me away. It really does. So lots of good people. I learn so much from everyone I speak to. I will say having my lovely wife on for an episode was my favorite. How's that? Now she's absolutely awesome. And um, yeah, I was very happy to have her on in her own right. I have listened to quite a few of your uh, podcasts and they are really informative. And you're so right. The, the story that people share uh, and their unique perspective on not only the industry and what they've gone through, but their history is is really great to listen to. So I highly recommend um, have a listen to your podcast if, if you haven't yet. I'd just like a shout out to uh, a gentleman who's actually given me support in the last eight months. He's listened and whenever I've when I've been enthused about things and he's listened when I have been less than enthused about things. So uh, Adam Parsons, uh, if you do listen to this, uh, thank you very much for the help and support you have uh, given me in many aspects to keep going. Thanks, Adam. And thank you so much for joining me, Tom. I really appreciate your time. And if you want to learn more about Tom and the Health and Safety Podcast, you can find him on LinkedIn or visit healthandsafetyconversations.com. Thanks, Nicole.